If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 18. We've uh, taken a little bit of a break from the book of John, but we're now going to look back and continue our journey through this book. Uh, and as we lead up to Christmas Day, um, we're going to consider the end of Jesus' life and what that has to do with the message of Christmas. But today we're going to look at John chapter 18 and 19. And the title is Conversations with Jesus. So we're going to look at a few conversations, a few of the final conversations that Jesus has before the cross. And like I said earlier, I hope what you walk away with is that you are more in love with Jesus when you consider what he says in John 18 and 19 than you were when you came in this morning. That as we look at who he's talking to, how they respond, and what he says, and ultimately what he does in John 19, that you would love Jesus even more greatly than perhaps you do right now. As we've been going through this book, um, I was able to do John chapter 1, and, and um, I'll do a little quick refresher on what John is um, trying to do here. But, uh, but another question I think that, is, uh, that, that we need to answer, or that John is trying to answer, is, is do you love Jesus? After you see what he says, after you see what he does, do you love Jesus? And that's what I hope you walk away with this morning. Uh, back in John chapter 1, we talked about how John is trying to show who Jesus is, that Jesus is making a claim, that he is the one sent of God to bring eternal life to people. Right in John 20, that's kind of the thesis statement. And in John chapter 1, we also learn several things that John is trying to prove about Jesus. We learn that John's trying to prove that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is the light of God or the truth of God that illuminates the darkness, the darkness of our hearts, the darkness of confusion, the darkness of sin. He also says in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist actually says that uh, in the second half of the chapter. So all the way back in the very first chapter, there are these seeds planted about who Jesus is. And as we have gone through this book, hopefully you've seen how Jesus keeps saying over and over again, I am these things. He's making these claims. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb. I am the Shepherd. But what we're going to do differently in John 18 and 19 is... Jesus is no longer making these claims, saying, believe in me, I am these things. Now he's saying, I'm going to prove to you that I am these things. We're going to look at four conversations, and in each one, Jesus is going to prove that he is something that he has claimed to be before. And hopefully we have time to get through all of them. I'll try to go quick, but, um, but it is so important to consider these things as we follow these threads of who is Jesus, uh, we finally come to the chapters where now it's not just a claim that he's making, 
Now it's, I will prove it to you. So in John chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says this. So if you remember the last time we were in John was John chapter 17, and that was Jesus' prayer. And he prays for himself, he prays for his immediate disciples, and he prays for all those coming after him who would follow him. So as he ends his prayer, then in John chapter 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken those words, when he had prayed, he went out with his disciples over the brook of Kidron, where there was a, this is important, a garden. Uh, this is, there's so much imagery in John we just didn't even look at, but just uh, so you're aware, uh, the imagery of garden is very important in the Bible, and it's absolutely no mistake or accident or coincidence that Jesus walks into a garden right before he has to make a choice that will impact humanity. You might be able to think of another garden that had the same kind of implications. He walks into a garden where he and his disciples uh, entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And in chapter four, or verse 4, excuse me, it says this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward, and here's his first conversation we're going to look at, and he said to them, to his enemies and his betrayer, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Who did you come to get? Identify the one that you're here for. In verse 5, they answered him and they said, we're here for Jesus of Nazareth. Now pay attention to this part. It's very interesting. and You might miss this little detail. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I didn't notice that really before. As often as I've read this, I've not really noticed that little detail there at the end of that sentence. They drew back and fell to the ground. The, uh, the, the, the enemies with their weapons and their lanterns and their Roman soldiers and their Pharisees and their numbers come to this peaceful garden and Jesus steps out and he says, who are you looking for? And they name him and when he says, I am he, they fall to the ground. Why is that? In John chapter 1, John makes the claim that Jesus is God. In John chapter 18, at this pivotal moment in the garden, Jesus steps forward and says, I am God. And they know it. If they've been lying to themselves this whole time, they can't help but fall to the ground in fear when God himself steps forward and says, I am. Back in Exodus 3, verse 14, God identifies himself this way to Moses. Moses is at the burning bush, and it starts talking to him. 
And it says, Moses, I have a mission for you. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to free my people. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to let them go and stand against the mighty forces of Egypt on my behalf. And Moses says, how do I know who you are, and how do I get people to understand what my mission is? And God says to him, let them know that I am has sent you. And Jesus says, I am. And the Pharisees and his enemies know in that moment that he is God, and they are dropped to the ground by the power of this revelation. Jesus is not saying, I'm God, come and test, come and see. He is now saying, I am God, and there's nothing else to say about it. I am he. So they've now fallen to the ground. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he chuckled a little bit, but he said, uh, who are you seeking? And they said again, finally, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I just told you, I am he. Therefore, stop falling to the ground in fear because you know exactly who I am. Get up and do what you've come here to do. Now that you realize that you've made the biggest mistake of your life, you still have a purpose, and I have a mission, and we need to complete it. So if you seek me, let these go their way, that the, uh, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. This is another interesting little detail where Jesus is saying, I am God. Back in John 17, he prayed for his disciples. So just a chapter before, just some time before, he would prayed for his disciples. And one of the things he prayed for his immediate friends is that they would be safe from what was coming because they had purpose and mission in the kingdom later on. And so Jesus has just said, I am he. He has equated himself with God, the holy name of God. And then he fulfills his own prayer, proving he has the power of God over any situation. He says to the enemies, to the Pharisees who were there that day, I'm the one you're looking for. Take me and let these go their way. And we know that they were able to leave. We know that this detachment of soldiers and Pharisees did not take any disciples, and only those who wanted to follow did so after this. Jesus is proving that he is the power of God because he is God. He fulfills his own prayer that he just spoke a few hours before. Jesus is God in this first conversation in John 18. It is proven by this interaction. And no one there who was listening that night could say otherwise that this was not God they were looking at. We're going to fast forward a little bit to the next conversation. And we're going to go to verse 28. This is a little bit later in the evening and Jesus has been meeting with different people. He's been on trial with different Jewish people, and now the Jews are moving Jesus up to a trial with the Romans. And we're going to look at verse 28 through 40 for this second conversation. But keep in mind that Jesus is God. That is the most important thing going forward, because every other conversation we're going to look at flows 
from that truth that Jesus is God. In John 18, verse 28, it says this. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Oh, also important uh, to remember is that Passover is going on. Um, so there was a garden. There's some connections back to the Old Testament there, and the Passover is going on. This will also be very important in a few minutes. Pilate then went out and said to them, What accusation do you bring against this man? And the Jewish religious leaders answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Here's the conversation where it starts. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? So we get to this point in the early morning where Jesus' trial has now gone to the Romans and it's gone to Pilate. And Pilate's a little confused about what's going on here. He doesn't understand why this man is here. The Jewish religious leaders don't really have great evidence or reasoning for him to be here. But they certainly have a drive to get rid of Jesus. And so Pilate has to take some sort of action with this man. And so what Pilate's concerned about, as any good Roman leader would be, is whether or not Jesus is trying to overthrow the might of of Rome. That's how the Roman peace works. If you are conquered by the empire of Rome, as long as you mind your P's and Q's and you stay in line with who's actually in charge, which would be the Romans, then things go well. But they certainly don't like when anyone starts a revolution or tries to set up a new kingdom or tries to overthrow the power of Rome. And so this is what's on Pilate's mind as he's interviewing Jesus. And he says, why are you here? Who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with his own question. And he asks Pilate, well, can you be a little more specific about what you're talking about? Are you worried about me being a king because you're a Roman? And any other king than Caesar would be a problem? Or are you worried about me being a king because of what uh, my accusers have told you? And Pilate answers and he says, well, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered me to you, uh, delivered you to me. What have you done? He's essentially saying, well, I don't really know why you're here, but are you a threat? Are you a threat to Rome? Are you a threat to the empire I represent? Are you a threat to the peace that I'm trying to maintain? Are you trying to set yourself up over Rome? And Jesus answers something interesting, and I point this out as, as uh, one of the final conversations, because in 18 chapters of John, Jesus has taught so much. And in these final conversations, we are seeing, I think, what are supposed to be the most important things to take away. 
the most important things to remember. There's so much to study, so much to learn from Jesus. And the final few moments before the cross, he is pointing out the most important things he's come to teach and to share. And he answers in verse 36. He says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And if you need proof for that, go back to John, do go back to earlier in, in John 18, right after Jesus says, take me, let my friends go. What does Simon do? What does Peter do in verse 10? Peter's love for Jesus is so fierce that he cannot see his friend taken away in chains that he pulls out a sword and he goes to war for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Don't do that. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. I wouldn't be here right now. But Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away because the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of man. It's not like the Roman Empire. It's not like the Egyptian Empire. It's not like ancient kingdom of Israel. It's not like those things. It's not about power. It's not about land. It's not about political influence or gain or anything like that. It's about sharing the truth of Jesus and God and the gospel with sinners who are in need of a savior. It's about souls. It's about people. It's about showing people what God wants in a relationship with them. So the first conversation, Jesus said, I am God. In the second conversation here with Pilate and all of the Roman Empire uh, bearing down on him, Jesus says, I am the truth of God. I am the illuminator of truth. John chapter 1 says this. Should have marked it. So many markings. Nope, I'll find it here. That was the true light. This is John chapter 1, verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And earlier it said that John the Baptist, one came to bear witness to the light. And the world was full of darkness, and the light came into the world, and the darkness had to flee from the light. And we talked about how that was the truth of who God is. That is the truth about Jesus, the truth of the gospel. And Jesus here in his first conversation with Pilate that we're going to look at is saying to this most powerful man, your kingdom is not what's important. My kingdom is what's important. And our kingdoms are totally different because mine's about giving the truth and the light and the hope of God to lost sinners. And he finishes verse four, uh, 36 by saying, but now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, are you a king then? He's just confused. What is this 
mean? Are you actually a king? Do I have any reason to be concerned about you? And Jesus answers him and says in, uh, in John chapter 18, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. Now, Jesus doesn't get this personal with everybody. If you read through the book, you'll notice that not every conversation he has is this candid. But Jesus is holding nothing back for this man. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should, what? Bear witness to the truth. Back in John chapter 1, we just keep going back there. John the Baptist says, bear witness to this man. And I pointed out back then, that, and, and that, that, that phrase comes up over and over and over again in John. It was important in Jewish cultures that if you wanted to prove something true, then you needed to have overwhelming evidence. And the evidence was the witness of those who knew what you were saying to be true. So if you could produce 50 people that said, that agreed with your version, with your uh, account, and you had 50 people that agreed with you and there was only 25 people that said otherwise, then you, had been, then, yeah, then, then you were believed. You had the overwhelming amount of witness to the truth. Jesus says, I was born, I'm a king that was born to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So imagine in a culture where the more people that agree with your story, then the more believable it is. Imagine in that culture when the king of the kingdom, the ultimate authority, walks in and says, I agree with your version of the story. I agree with what you say. Imagine if the king walks in and bears witness to the truth. See, Pilate can't think in these, uh, can't, isn't thinking in these terms because Pilate thinks he's in charge. Pilate thinks he's got the power. Pilate thinks that this day is going exactly how he will choose that it goes. But Jesus, who a few hours before proved that he was God just by speaking, now stands in front of this most powerful man in front of Rome, and he says, I am a king, the king, who was born to bear witness to the truth, not a truth, not some truth, not half truth, but the truth of reality. That's who I am. And so it's fascinating, I think, Pilate's next words. Because he's clearly con uh, conflicted. But he, say, he says this, well, what is truth? I mean, what else are you going to say, right? He could have said, oh, my goodness, I believe who you are, and then his whole life comes crashing down, right? Or, but, but he wasn't able to say, okay, this is weird. You need to leave. I, 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 can't, I can't talk to you anymore. All he can say is, what is truth? And then he has to leave and say, I, I, we, he's got to go. There, there's nothing wrong here. There's no threat to Rome. I find no fault in him at all. So let me release him. Let me release him. In these two conversations, Jesus has proven that he is God and that he is truth and that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom than we would expect. Uh, it's an upside-down kingdom where it's not about power and might and influence and how much you have and how much authority you say you have. It's not about that at all. 
In fact, it's about caring for those in need. It's about looking just like Jesus. That's why we read Philippians earlier, where it said, Paul says, here's what I want you to do, church. If you're a Christian, here's how I want you to act together. And then he says, here's why I want you to do that, and here's how I want you to do that. I want you to look like Jesus. Back at the beginning of John 18, I didn't point this out then, but I want to circle back real quick to it now is that as Jesus is proving these massive claims about who he is, who this whole book has been pointing to, in the midst of all that, Jesus has never stopped caring for his sheep. And we're going to look at another conversation where he says, where he proves, I am the good shepherd. So back when they came for him in the garden, he said, by the way, take me and let my friends go. Let my sheep go to safety. You see, Jesus is making these claims, and he's always full of compassion for those in need. That's who Jesus is. So, as he's now revealed his true identity to Pilate, Pilate doesn't understand what to do with it. He asks this interesting question, well, what is truth? And then he has to walk away. And then he tries everything he can to set Jesus free. But the anger and the hate of the religious leaders who fell to their knees when Jesus revealed himself to them would not be quenched. And so as we move into John 19, Pilate and Jesus have another conversation that I think is very important to consider. Very important to consider because Jesus has made so many claims about who he is in this book. And he's starting to prove them all true. Just in case you were still doubting who Jesus really is. Uh, in John 19, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 in this third conversation. Then we're going to look at one more and then we'll be done. But, but this is what happens next. Uh, therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But now Jesus isn't answering. Jesus gave him no answer. I wonder how long that moment took, <laughs> like if he stood there and watched him for a little while. Or... But then Pilate says to Jesus, are you not speaking to me now? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you, and the power to release you. So earlier in the conversation, I mentioned that Pilate believes, and here's the proof, he's in control of this entire situation. And Jesus is about to tell him, Pilate, you actually have nothing to do with what's going on today. You have nothing to do with why I'm here, and which way we go in this moment. Pilate, you have no more control. You, you, you have no more control than the people who are, than, than that robber Barabbas who is in the dungeon that you think you hold the power over his life. You have no control with what's going on here. This is important to remember because Jesus talked about this back in John 10. So if you want to turn back there, you can. But in John 10, 
Verses 11 through 18, Jesus makes a crucially important point that at that moment, so many people probably didn't understand, but now, when it's coming down to the end of the line, and Jesus is saying, I'm no longer making claims about who I am, I'm now telling you emphatically, I am proving to you who I am. He says this, uh, John 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You guys remember this? But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees. So in that garden, there were wolves coming. But did Jesus flee? Not at all, because he's not a hireling. He's the good shepherd. He's the leader of Israel. He's the one that God has said way back in the Old Testament, I am going to send the leader that is worthy to save my people. The good shepherd stepped forward into the wolves to protect the sheep. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But I, in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And he says this interesting thing that they probably just missed. I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, Jump down to 17. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Here's what's important to Pilate that he wouldn't have known about, but you and I get to understand. In verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down myself. I have the what? The power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. So Pilate, I know you represent all of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire on the world right now, but Pilate, I created this world. I created you. I give you your authority. No one is in power except by what I say, and Pilate, I am exactly where I have meant to be because I am, in fact, the good shepherd who cares for the sheep. Jesus answers Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate's like, okay, we just we got to stop talking. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. I think Pilate's probably pretty convinced that Jesus is more than just a man. And then he is in a rather unique position to decide this man's fate. And then Jesus reminds him, well, Pilate, you actually, you, you have no say over that either. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be because I care for my sheep because Jesus is the good shepherd. Well, we know how this goes. Eventually, Pilate gives in to all the pressure around him, and he says, crucify him. And so Jesus is taken out. And he's put on a criminal's cross, completely innocent of any crime. And he is 
killed between two others. And the last conversation we're going to look at is just, it's so short. But it is at the end of John 19. And it starts at verse 30. And the conversation's a little little one-sided, but not really. This record is a little one-sided at this point. But honestly, this is a conversation that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. In John 19, verse 30, it says this, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The conversation is, it is finished. And the question is, what is finished? It's interesting to note that this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned work needing to be finished. In John chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, I am here to finish my father's work. In John 17, as he prays uh, for himself in his high priestly prayer, he prays, Father, help me to finish your work. What is being finished? I want to read to you from Exodus. And remember what was going on in Jewish culture during this moment. When Jesus is being put on trial and being crucified, and Jesus is telling anyone who will listen, I am God, I am the truth that you need, I am the good shepherd who cares for you. He's saying one more thing. He's proving one more thing. And all of these things, I hope, help you and I to fall in love with Jesus more and to realize the beauty of who he is. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 says this. Then Moses called, I don't know if anybody who heard Jesus yell that day, it is finished. I don't know if they would have thought of this then, but they should have been. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. With the blood on your door, the Lord will save you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever, something that the people of God are never supposed to forget. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. You shall never stop remembering the blood sacrifice for your life. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? What does this mean? You shall say to them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. And then the children of Israel went away and did as just as the, uh, did so just as the Lord had commanded 
Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is a conversation that's been going on even before Exodus, but the picture of what's to come is made plain that night when Moses tells the people, the angel of death is coming, and you need blood for protection, the blood of the lamb. Jesus has claimed before in John that he is the lamb. He's not only the good shepherd who protects the lambs, he is the sacrificial lamb. And when he says it is finished, what he's saying is the work of redemption that started in Genesis chapter 3 has now come to pass. It's been an ongoing conversation between humanity and God. And Jesus has come. God himself, the truth, the light, the good shepherd, the compassionate one, the washer of the feet, has come. And he says, now I finish this conversation once and for all. It's no longer a problem. Several times in John, we've already looked at it, but we won't look at them specifically. But he says in John 15 and, and places like that, if you love me, do this, follow me, keep my commandments. If you love me, what he's saying is, because I finished the work on the cross, because I've paid for your sins, because I've washed you clean with my blood and water, because of those things, you and I are now in relationship. We're no longer enemies. You're no longer lost in the darkness. The light of the truth has illuminated your hearts. Now do what I say now follow me. Interesting to note here at the end of John 19, just so they're making sure everybody's dead and they can bury them, uh, in this account of the gospel, the soldiers throw the spear into Jesus' side, and what does it say comes out? Blood and water. I don't know if you remember this, but way back in John, uh, John chapter 4, there was a marriage proposal that was made at a well between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And what did he tell her that she needed to hear first and foremost? I am the water of life that if you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. Come and be mine. And here at the end, we circle right back to that very fact, proving that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So the question to consider today as we go, and we're wrapping up, I promise. What will you do with this Jesus? How will you respond to him? There were several responses, and there could be many more. The response of the Pharisees was to totally reject their God, though they knew who he was. They could not bear for him to be the ruler of their life. There was the response of Pilate, who probably knew deep within his heart that he should take this man seriously, yet everything else around him, the pressures of his life and his world, made it impossible for him to choose the right thing. And then we didn't talk about it. Of course, it always comes up, but I didn't want to focus on this. But there's the response of Peter as well, who loved Jesus. You can't deny that Peter loved Jesus. He was willing to fight for him. But Peter loved Jesus, but Peter hadn't really understood his Jesus. 
And it's going to take a conversation later on in John for Peter to finally get a little bit more about who Christ really is. But that's a response that we can have as well. We can love him so much that we think we know what's best for Christ. That we think what we would do is what Jesus would do instead of stepping back and saying, Lord, who are you? How should I follow you according to what you say? But those are the, that, that's the question. What will you do with Jesus, who is God, who is the truth, who is the good shepherd full of compassion, and who is your sacrificial lamb who took away your sin, if you will but believe in him? How do you view this Jesus? And I hope and pray that you are falling more in love with him as you consider these things, these conversations. His last few moments before a terrible death, he was doing the work of the gospel and the kingdom for you and for me, even in those last few moments. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning and for your word and for these accounts and for what we can learn about who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that you would show us in our situations, wherever we are, how we can be more like Jesus. Lord, help us to grow together as a church and as a community of believers. Help us to grow together more to look like Jesus individually and how we act together. Father, I pray that if there's anyone out there who's been listening to these messages, that, Father, you would draw them to the truth of who Jesus is. And if they don't know him, they would put their trust in him. They can be assured that he is who he says he is. And for anyone who has already done that, Father, and is walking with Christ, I pray we become more in love with who he is by looking at what he did, what he said, how he said it. Father, that we would just, we would just be so overwhelmed with Jesus that we would want to be like him and so that others can come and see who the Messiah really is. We thank you and we love you. We ask you to be with us in your name. Amen.